Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to air your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right on KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. Title of the show, Olayami Olorin, a lawyer on criminal justice, Stuart McIntosh and climate and crybaby businesses. Olayami Olorin, a lawyer public defender and writer discusses the fraud that is our criminal justice system and difficult immigration system. I frequently watch Like It or Not on the Benjamin Dixon show as they usually have substantive guests. I'm usually listening as I either prepare for uh, interviews or I'm writing articles and blogs. This particular morning, I got captured by a lawyer who was unapologetic about her critique of our criminal justice system and the difficulties navigating our immigration system. I knew I wanted her voice for the Politics Done Right audience, so be prepared to hear someone who knows what she's talking about. Stephanie Rule points out an inconvenient fact small businesses complaining about a living wage must learn. I use my own media company as an example. Many small businesses complain that paying a living wage would put them out of business. Stephanie Rule made a point they should all note. Because you know what, folks? It is important that everybody is paid their due, paid what they're worth. Stuart McIntosh had something prescient, some very prescient words on climate change. His new book, Climate Crisis Economics and Net Zero Transition, breaks it down. Stuart did not disappoint. It is clear that he gets it and has the narrative that can make a difference in the limited amount of time we have to start getting climate crisis under control. His new book, Climate Crisis Economics, The Net Zero Transition, details much of what we discussed in more depth and a much deeper context that a book affords. Before we get started, however, please remember to keep your community radio station, KPFT, in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell your friends to tune in to 90.1 FM Houston or listen at kpft.org. Likewise, keep our 100,000 watt station that covers the entire Southeast Texas on air by donating what you can afford at our website, kpft.org. kpft.org. Lastly, Lastly, remember, you can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. Again, that is facebook.com slash politics done right or on YouTube live at politics done right.com slash YouTube. Politics done right.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is Egberto Willies. Again, that is at EG. B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L 
I-E-S. Well, folks, you know what? Let's get busy. Today, we have a special guest. And, you know, she's going to be able to cover two topics, both our criminal justice system as well as our immigration system and all that it entails. Olayemi Olorin, welcome to Politics Done Right. And I hope I said that correctly. Listen, you got it. Olayemi. Thank you you for having me. I'm good. I'm happy to be talking to you. Well, look, let me tell you, I saw you on the Benjamin Dixon show, and I hope uh, neither Benjamin nor Miss Azor gets mad at me for going after you. But I found you so intriguing that I had to talk to you about what you're doing out there in New York. Thank you. Well, look, um, I, I want to talk about uh, what you do first within the criminal justice system. You are you actually see how these things work on the inside. What right. is wrong with our system today? So so, you know, when you say what is wrong, it suggests like something, you know, there's some kind of error, like some kind of something went haphazard along the lines. But the system works, works exactly how they mean it to work. I think the criminal calling it the criminal justice system in and of itself, I think, is an intentional misnomer. They, they call it that so that people buy into it. They believe in and of itself. Oh, that's what it's here to do. And so when it doesn't do that, they're like, this is a mistake. It's an error. The system broke somehow. But it really is just un- when I was studying um like when I thought I was going to be a lawyer in undergrad and I was studying and I was reading how the criminal system is, you know, racist and corrupt. I thought it was something insidious, like something you have to like parse out and find and, you know, statistics to show it to you. It's really just on its face, who, who where, down to where they put the police, what laws they pass, who they choose to arrest, how they charge it, how they treat it at arraignments. The entire thing is just deliberately set up to be on the backs of poor black and brown people. You know, it is interesting because I have I have a, a very diverse audience. And one of the things that um, people and, and not only that, and on my show, I try to be extremely frank. In other words, uh, I, I, I talk about the colorization. I talk about all these things within not only the criminal justice system, but immigration and otherwise. And one of the things that people a lot of uh, people on the right generally white in my audience and some black folk in my audience who are sort of on the right would mention, well, the FBI statistics says X, the FBI statistics says Y. And my answer to them always is BS in, BS out, which means, of course, and I think you just alluded to that. If you're arrest, if you're if you're over policing a, policing a particular neighborhood, why don't you expand on that rather than me uh, saying that? So. First of all, where they put the police are in black and brown neighborhoods. It's just a reality, right? You walk in, you're in Manhattan somewhere. Nice. You're not going to see the police. You walk in Brooklyn the minute you get off the train station where I'm at, the police are there, right? Also, you have to deal with the fact that what people think of as crime or what they're thinking the police actually do is just not what it is. That's not what you're seeing in the criminal system. The majority of my cases are absolutely nonsense. Like, oh, some poor person jumped the turnstile. Somebody had an argument with their mother. Those are the kinds of things. Oftentimes, too, your clients are the ones calling the police for help. They're calling. They think, you know, the police is someone that will just talk and de-escalate or step in or something like that. Like people will call because they're having an argument with their family member. And now the next thing you know, someone's being arrested. They have no choice of their own. And most things in the criminal system don't actually get prosecuted. Right. Like the majority of the system is just like nonsense misdemeanors. They get thrown out. They don't do this. They don't make it there because these aren't about like having strong cases. It's about just where police are being placed and who they can get into the system and who they can continue these cases against. So that's really um, what it ends up looking like. It just isn't what people think it is. And we have to go against the general media narrative, right? If you watch TV, you watch the news, you watch all these different things, it's constantly being made out like crime, 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 crime is this big issue. There are all these big, bad boogeymen. That's when it was in the criminal system. But 
It's not. It's just other people look just like me, look just like you, doing regular things, having regular activity, things that become, you know, criminal that wouldn't be. Like I, I do the same with my friends. I like to do is like watch TV and look at how many things would be a, a criminal case if this were a black person, this were a, t- a, t- a different type of thing. Like you watch stuff and it's joke. Like I was watching How I Met Your Mother last night, first episode. Ted Mosby decides he wants to go steal the, the blue trumpet horn to give to Robin out of the restaurant. And I'm just like, and if he were black and that's Manhattan, that would be a misdemeanor and he'd be fighting that for the next year. And that's how it is. You watch things and they don't, they don't, they don't craft crime this way. The narrative isn't crafted around white people. It's not pointed out to you as crime. It's just them living. But when the narrative um, has to do with people of color, all of a sudden it's this big, whoo, this boogeyman and people are picturing this different kind of thing. And then they, they go from thinking of people in the criminal system as people like them and their own part of their community to these like big, bad problems that can't be addressed or dealt with in any other way, but locking them up and throwing them away. But it's, it's just not that. It is amazing because if what you're telling me, uh, most of the cases that you are handling have to do with somebody jumping a style or somebody picking up something. If it's these little things, it almost tells you that this big fear that crime is so bad. And every time you see somebody using a gun on the street on TV, that if you walk in the middle of Brooklyn, there are people are, well, Brooklyn has several million people, right? And yeah. if you have one incident a day or five incidents a day or 10 incidents a day. Yeah. Most of Brooklyn is just fine. And likely it is, it is isolated. Yeah. Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and even, and even just that is the reality is this, even if you thought crime is what it is, even if I conceded to that and I said, okay, crime is this huge problem. We have all these people committing crime and doing that, doing this, the response that still wouldn't support the idea that we need to have all these police and we need to have this expensive criminal system because if that's the case, if crime is what it is, say we have the worst crime problem ever, we have the most police employed. There's no other place putting the money into policing that America's putting into it. There's no amount of people having the amount of police. There's no money, no more places policing this much, having all these laws, having this criminal, this criminal system. So if we have this huge prison industrial complex, all this money given to the police, all this money in this, well, why is it not safe then? If that's what leads to safety, why is it not safe? New York, yeah. New York gives $11 billion to policing. You know, Brittany, Brittany Packnett, uh, I don't know if you know who she is. Yeah, she, she, yeah she's an activist. And, and uh, she made the same case actually two days ago. She Look said, we have had over the last several years an increase in the budgets for police and an increase in crime. Doesn't that right. tell you that if you're judging based on the amount of money that you put into something, that it's completely and entirely ineffective? Is yes. that correct? Yes. Exactly. People don't want to, they don't want to talk about where crime actually comes from, the root, the root reality. I'll tell you what, I, I, and that's where I wanted to go next. So you, you anticipated my question. Give us the root. The root of crime is poverty, right? The root of crime is all these other societal, social ills that we have. It's mental illness, is strife, is stress, is all of that. It's all linked to that. I always think it's funny because um, I've noticed this in America in general. All of America is like, um, underdog stories and things that they love and people they love to champion always have a background of something that like a criminal case, some kind of this. And now all of a sudden they're this beloved person that you don't, you're not scared of, you know, what changed, what changed their resources, right? Like they, they always like, Oh, they changed. They're no longer this. Cause they don't have to be like, people aren't choosing a life of crime. People aren't choosing to be stressed. So nobody wants to be dealing with the police. Nobody wants to have to steal anything. Nobody wants to have to fight anything. Those things happen because of other, other um, burdens and stress. Like I always try to tell people, 
the times in my life where I've been most likely to curse somebody out or fight somebody in the streets, I was broke. Life was hard. I was stressed out. It was this. If you alleviate the conditions that lead to this, it wouldn't happen. Like, it's no coincidence that while the policing budget and mass incarceration and all this is going up, the money they're putting into the schools is going down. The money they're putting into mental health resources is going down. All of this is very, very clearly connected. And and they they choose not to see that and not but but you know what is ironic when you when you racialize uh, criminality it's amazing because I don't I don't you're probably too young to remember the crack epidemic yeah, I lived I know through about the, it historically you heard about it uh, yes. the crack epidemic uh, it was a bad thing and these were super superhuman guys that were using crack of course the guys that use cocaine they didn't much bother them the reaction to the drug are the same but now we have the opioid epidemic. And now it's a disease. Uh-huh. It's an mm-hmm. issue that needs funding. It's an issue that needs all these. In other words, we're not funding the criminality that we fund. I mean, the police that we funded to handle crack back in the 80s and 90s. Right. We're funding the medical health of these yep. people who are addicts. I think that just made your case. In other words, yep. if you move the money towards what the what did you call it? The root of the problem, it yep. seems like we would have solutions, right? Exactly. But the reality is what people don't like to say is there is some level of, you know, ignorance, right? Like people just don't know better. We've been, you know, um, we've all been fed the narrative on policing, like our whole life. Everything is police. You see them there in the shows. You have every reason to believe that. I understand why people have a default in trusting the police in the criminal system. There is an aspect of that. Like people don't have the information, but there's a large aspect of just not being honest about the fact that they, they want it that way. They have built a business over police. Police get money over time to arrest people. Prosecutors are getting paid. Um, the, the prisons are making money. All of this is a business. They are in the business of doing this, right? So there's that aspect. It's that, it's that road you have to tread. It's like, let me try to educate who I can educate. But we have to be honest about these people are not unaware that the system is working, how they want it to work. They know it. It's not accidentally just working like this in every single state. You know, it's, it's like this deliberately, unfortunately, but deliberately. That is one of the reasons the privatization of the criminal justice system is so is so dangerous because when it becomes a profit motive, at that yep. point there's a reason to sustain uh, the way it actually works. That that is a yep. shame. But anyhow, um, so as a public defender, uh, I want to close out this quick section about as a public defender, the, most of the people that you find in the system are for petty things, which mm-hmm. just about says that the, the police has too much they don't have much to do none none to do nothing to do oh i love that i love that i love that that's a good bahamian type uh, thing none to do <laughs> like not at all i think i say that every day i every time i get a case of a family member like cursing out each other or having a dispute i call up my family and remind them that they would all be in prison if we lived in the bombers i'm like i'm like you the first time i realized you could charge somebody with harassment for cursing you out i'm like what? Like, <laughs> I have narrowly evaded custody. <laughs> like, so it, it's unbelievable the stupidness you read. I open a case and I'm like, sometimes I literally, I have to say it on the record. I'm like, Your Honor, read this. I can't. Let's be serious. Let's have a serious. And it'll be crazy because you would think when you point out ridiculous and people like the shame, the shame would stop them. No, the prosecutor will be next to me, double down, like, I'll be like, listen, I have the complainant here. The complainant says that ain't happened. They call the police, da da da. There's a disclosure. They're like, we're not prepared to dismiss any charges at this time. You're then not you, if you're not prepared, you better dismiss. 
they the, the very very first case I ever ever arraigned as a public defender. This guy was accused of criminal trespassing, right, at his own house address. But here's the best part: on by the police's own, they gave him a ticket. On the ticket, they have to take his license, write his address on the ticket, his home address. They wrote the home address, the same address as they're saying he was trespassing. I literally say, I'm like, Your Honor, I'm like, I'm gonna make a show of this. I'm like, if everybody could just turn their attention, let's read. My client is accused of trespassing at this address. Flip to the next page for his home address. Same address. Prosecutors still would not dismiss. Like, wouldn't Why would he dismiss? Because they cannot bring themselves to not double down on the investment in this goofy system. That is a prime shame. Anyhow, um, for all my audience, they can listen that just as I have uh, an accent, you also have one. You are from the Bahamas. I heard you tell a story about how difficult it is for some people who've done their, who've come to this country, played their part as you are a public defender working very hard within the system and you're still having issues with immigration when others don't. Why don't you tell us that story? It's, um, it's an uphill battle that for me, I'm lucky enough that it even is a battle because for a lot of people, there's just simply no option. It's not even available to you um, at all. Like anytime anyone asks me, I was having this conversation with my big sister the other day because the U.S. immigration system is so impossible that people have a hard time believing it is. They see you there and they ask you, you know, how did you do it? And when you when you basically tell them there's no way for you to replicate this, you know what I mean? It's the same. What do I tell you? Go back. 13 years, go to a bunch of schools. So find hundreds of thousands of dollars, pay for a bunch of education, do OPT, work a lot of jobs to the bone. You can't collect no money and hope and pray to God you manage to land on the right lottery situation where you could get a visa, you know? So it's, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult to be able to stay. Like I have a sister just as competent as me, literally on the med school path or whatever, graduated with all the honors, had to, and going to med school in the Caribbean. I have it, I've seen it happen more times than not. Most international students who I went to school with and boards aren't here anymore. A lot of Bahamians that I know aren't here anymore because it's just so, it's so unfeasible and inaccessible to us. And what's the solution? Because I mean, how, what's your solution? How are you going to, what, what are what do you plan on doing? Well, there needs to be more routes to citizenship. That's the first thing, right? Like, the, the reality is you can't apply for citizenship unless you're married, um, you get married or you have a green card or some or permanent residency in some way. And you can't get those from even most of the visa outlets. If you could even manage to get a student, a student visa or work visa, anything, those still don't guarantee you routes to citizenship. And getting the work visa is like there's a cap on the system. It's incredibly expensive. There are wait lists that are 10 years and plus long, depending on what kind of. So the first thing they need to do is people who come on student visas should automatically have a right, like access to a work visa and ability to get a green card. If people are there, they're legally there for a certain amount of years, they should automatically have an avenue. Second, they need to make these processes way less expensive. Like, And not only is it expensive to pay for, but a lot of times, even for the student visas, you have to be able to show like at one time that whoever's your sponsor, your parent can pay for years and years of school at once in their bank statement. They have to show that or they can't get it, even if they don't have to. Like for law school, I went to law school with a full scholarship. Um, but the tuition was 53,000 or something like that a year for them to give me my work, my student visa for me to be able to go to law school where I got a full scholarship already. My daddy had to be able to show financially that he would be able to pay this amount, this tuition every year, even though he doesn't have to. And they show like they make him provide an affidavit of supporter. You have to provide this amount of much more money or they can't get it. So they already make it. So poor people have no access to that system at all. That's wild. I, I, it's, it's incredible. So 
people don't realize that. And I think that's the first thing that needs to happen. There needs to be actual routes where people could stay illegally. And, you know, for those who said, well, look, uh, you, you take what you can get. This isn't your country. I mean, I, I would love to hear your response because I do have a response, but I'm, interest, I'm interested in yours. Um, you know, I don't really care about too much what they have to say. Like, I don't even really even get into because there's just no merit there. And like, why? Why engage you? Because you could be as mad as you want to be. I'm still here. Right. Like, as far as I look at it, it's like, this is the life that I built. The same way people feel attachments to anything that they've built, anything they've done with an investment, anything they've done right, wrong, or not, nothing. I, everything that I have, I earned. I came here uh, legally, not that I think it matters in terms of your investment or your place and your right to feel attached to a country you built your home. But nevertheless, I came here legally. I went to your schools. I got all your degrees. I cleaned up. I took the bar. I passed. I'm here. I'm a contributing member of society. I don't really care how you feel. Um, about it. And honestly, if I had the same kind of mentality you have, what's likely is you probably wouldn't be sitting in this country either, right? Because I don't know how many people are just true-blooded Americans go all the way back, you know? It's this it's land. You're, that's, you're, the answer. You're... that's the answer I was waiting for. That's yes. the answer. That's the answer I was waiting for. In other words, this is one this country in particular, all of us in this hemisphere have a right to be here. Yes, Same. we know that certain things have to be done for paperwork, but Everybody on this hemisphere has the exactly. right to be here. Exactly. Lauren, tell me, oh, Olayemi, tell, yeah, Olayemi, tell me something that I should have asked you that I didn't ask you. You should have asked me that you did not ask me. Um, and let's, let me also tell you that I love when people have to look in the ear first because it tells me I must have asked them quite a bit of stuff already. Yeah, 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 you covered Um. I don't know, maybe uh, what I want to see happen. What I do you think, want? Yes. I think the narrative is what's got to change. A lot of what um, is able to go down is just because people have controlled the narrative and they prevented other stories from coming out. And I think as it pertains to immigration, immigrants are just not in the position to be our own advocates so much of the time. Like people are, while I'm going through my immigration stuff for so many years, they're like, oh, you should tell people about this if they knew this and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm going to tell them when I have a pending um, you know, visa application in front of USCIS. I can't do that. Like, I'm not in a position, you know, to do it. And that's what happens so often is immigrants, while they're going through it, they're not in a position to talk about it. And by the time they are, things have gone south. You know what I mean? They're, they have to go rebuild a life somewhere else. So I feel like um, what I really want to see happen is people really have an understanding that people cannot just do it the right, the right way. They can't just come here. They can't just apply for citizenship. Because I think when that changes, when people it will be harder for um, politicians to get up on stage and say empty things like that to people like and just not offer any routes to citizenship because people will finally have real understanding of the system and what needs to change. Immigration is one of those things they talk about ad nauseum just every year since I've been in this country. And I have never heard that the policy ain't changed once since I've been there. I've had to see. I'm like, so it's because people don't know. So what I want to do is I want to see the narrative change. I want people to be aware, like your, immigra- your immigration situation is actually a little bit raggedy. The system is a little bit, it's got, it's got a lot to improve and we need routes. So that. Olayemi, Lauren, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Your energy is palpable and not only that, but it's transmissible. You have a wonderful rest of your day. Thank you so much. Bye. A lot of small businesses complain about, oh, if the minimum wage goes up, they can't afford to pay their people. Or they're complaining that the government is giving too many people too much money. 
Through that extra $300 that's, that's due to expire in September, stop giving it to those people because we need those people to come and work for us. And if you are giving them what's equivalent to a minimum living wage, we can't afford them. We can't afford them to work for less than minimum wage. Is that fair? It's not fair, of course. And, you know, Stephanie Rule said something that you've heard me say several times. And let, let me give a good example using myself as an example. I had a software company and uh, one of the reasons, uh, you know, and it's, it was a very successful software company. Boeing used my stuff. NASA, everybody uses my stuff. But I, I gave, I told you guys a story of the reason why I went into activism. It was my passion. It was something that I wanted to do. It was altruistic, but not completely altruistic at the time. My website could take care of me after I got rid of all my expenses. Of course, uh, when Facebook and YouTube cut my the advertising by 90%, we lost 90% of our income. Henceforth, we start doing things like um, what, how we try to raise money now via our subscriptions to YouTube and subscriptions to Patreon. But um, people always ask things like, why don't you hire somebody to do X, Y, and Z for you or whatever? And the reason why is I preach all of the times, living wage, minimum wage, and most jobs shouldn't even be minimum wage. And right now, I can't afford to pay somebody for the level of work that I want them to earn. There are a lot of people who say, I want to volunteer. And I do take some volunteering. I mean, our, a lot of people volunteer. We, we have uh, uh, Bridge MCP volunteer. She designed the cups uh, for nothing. She helps out by answering stuff in the, in, the, in the room, all that kind of stuff. She volunteers to do that. Norman is helping me fix the fence right now that is completely out of whack. He's also did the voiceover for one of my books. We have uh, we have a lot of supporters here. Roberto Lewis has purchased everything, not because he needed it, just because he wanted to show support for politics done right. And we have uh, the um, Bruce Pollard, who was the editor of my latest book. I mean, so we have a lot of people that volunteer to do things like that. But when it comes to talking about hiring people, I I am not viable to hire people for what they're worth right now. So I don't. It's irresponsible for me to ask somebody to do a job that they can go out, that they should be able to go out there and make several thousand dollars doing and say, okay, I'll give you 15 bucks an hour or even 12 bucks an hour because you're looking for a job. Now, I think it is unethical. I think it is immoral. So I work my 16 hours a day, seven days a week, because until I can break that cycle, I don't have a viable business to be able to hire others. But most, a lot of small businesses don't think that way. They think that what they ought to do is they have to live good. They'll, they'll make most of the money and then give the pittance to those who work for them, those who are doing very important work. It is immoral. And that's why I don't do it. There are a lot of, I mean, a, a couple of college folks says, I'll, I'll come and do this for you. I can't get a job elsewhere right now. I'll do it for you. Just, just give me $12. No, it's not that. I'll rather donate some money to you. And, and, and then later on, you may surprise me and do something for me. 
but not that I'm giving you a payment for that. That's not a viable business. Now, listen to Stephanie Rule. I think it is wonderful because what Stephanie Rule says is what every small business must learn. Not because you have a business mean you are entitled to employees working as your slaves. And I say it that way because that if you want to pay somebody for what they're not for what they're worth and you're not willing to do so, there is a problem. Check out Stephanie Rule. Some powerful words there from the president saying that America is born out of an idea and thanking those who made the choice to come to this country enriching it. Uh, I do want to go back to our panel that has been patiently waiting for us and bring back in Stephanie Rule. Stephanie, you did hear the president there talk a little bit about the road to economic recovery, build back better, his phrase, obviously, uh, from the campaign trail, talking about the importance of immigration. But I do want to play for you something he said earlier today when he was uh, talking about one of the key impacts the pandemic has had on the economy. Take a listen to this. Instead of workers competing with each other for jobs that are scarce, employers are competing with each other to attract workers. That kind of competition in the market doesn't just give workers more ability to earn higher wages. It also gives them the power to demand to be treated with dignity and respect in the workplace. More jobs, better wages. That's a good combination. So the president, Stephanie, called this flipping the script. What does this dynamic mean for the economy in the long term? Listen, the president isn't wrong. For years and years, workers have not had any power. Employers had all the power. Now that's switching. And while we do hear from lots of businesses that say, I can't afford to pay my workers more, let's be honest, Eamon. If your business model is such that you cannot pay your employees a living wage, then newsflash, it is not a valued functioning business model. And it's time to change that. And especially as you look at Fortune 500 companies, big businesses. They've had an extraordinary year. Look at the stock market. The gains shouldn't only be gotten by executives and shareholders. It's time to actually give back to workers. Trickle-down economics doesn't work, but we're in a scenario right now where if you lift the bottom, it could potentially mean everyone rises. Now, are there inflation concerns? Without a doubt. Things are getting more and more expensive. We know the Fed is concerned about it. The Treasury Department is concerned about it. They do have more levers to curb this, and they're not going to do anything major just yet because it is transitory, right? We just got back to everything being reopened. Imagine it's like every business is trying to hire at the exact same time. So give it a few months. Wait until things reopen before you get completely panicked that inflation is taking everything over. For the time being, we're on a very good path. More money for workers. That's good news. She is absolutely right. I mean, if, if you have a business and you expect for your business to survive because you can take advantage of somebody else, you have not got a viable business. Uh, work it yourself. Work it yourself until you are able to pay somebody else what it's worth to help you. As you guys know right now, one of the big issues is our climate. And you know what? It's great to know that we have thinkers out there that are looking in every, from, every, from every side. They're actually thinking about 
how best do we handle this, whether it's from the economic side, the social side, et cetera. Anyhow, Stuart McIntosh is the author of Climate Crisis Economics, the net zero transition that will be published in September 2021 by the Rutledge Press. It is his third book. Stuart is executive director of the Group of 30, an international financial think tank composed of the world's leading central bankers, financial leaders, and academics. McIntosh is a past president of the National Association of Business Economics, the largest and most influential community of senior economists in America and globally. McIntosh speaks widely to diverse audiences. His commentaries and analysis are published in Specialist Journalists and the General Press. Stuart, welcome to Politics and Right. How are you doing today? Great. It's a pleasure to see you, Alberto. Thank you very much for inviting me. Well, look, we, we, we have a lot to talk about, a little bit of time. So let's get real busy into the core of this thing. First of all, uh, tell me a little bit about why you decided to write this book, Yet to be Unleashed. Well, I felt that we, we needed to think, think again about how we talk about climate crisis, about how we discuss it amongst ourselves, and about the goals and the glide paths to get us from a polluting present to a green and sustainable tomorrow. Now, this is a topic which is extremely urgent now, as, as, you, as we all know, and we can see it and feel it literally. Uh, yesterday and today, we can see the heat uh, in the West, in Oregon, bearing down on yes. people, in some cases, threatening people's lives. Because, of course, if you're old or, or compromised from a health perspective, these temperatures might kill you. And so it, 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 I felt it, we needed, I needed to make an intervention and lay out the challenges, the dangers, but also to make the case that actually we can do this. This is the paradoxical challenge we face. It's not that there are no solutions, that the situation is hopeless. Rather, it is that we know what we need to do. It's just that we oftentimes, too often, don't do what we know we should do. Or as my as my old maths professor in Scotland used to te- used to say to me, if I may use Scots for a moment, he said, oh, yes. "It's no that you couldn't, it's that you wouldn't." In other words, it's not that you can't do it. It's not that we can't make the transition. It's that too often we just don't want to, but we can and we must. Now I'm going to be look uh, the climate. Issue should never or should never have been a political issue. Uh, back in 1979, uh, President Carter, then actually a little after 79, came up with a program called Sin Fuels. It was during the oil, oil crisis. Likewise, uh, he did things like he put solar panels on the roof for, uh, of the White House. And we started into a progression sort of uh, similar to what occurred in Brazil, where mm-hmm. they created a really green energy in that they created gas, I mean, gas from plants, which is a recyclable, et cetera. A lot of this, in my opinion, has to do with direction, has to do with leadership. Um, what has been wrong with American leadership since we've known about this problem for such a long time? It's a really good example you give of, of President Carter understanding the threat. Because what happened after that was that the Republican Party recognized that people were getting more concerned about the climate and worried about the climate and wanted action. 
Because when people uh, see a crisis and realize a crisis, they then turn to the government and they say, do something about it. Now, the famous Republican pollster, Mr. Luntz, wrote an epochal memo where he said he said the way that the Republicans should fight green the green the surge and the demands for action was to bring this or suggest that the science was in doubt and say that it was still in dispute. Because if the science was in, in dispute, then perhaps we wouldn't need to act. Whereas if the science was certain, then the, the voters would say, well, get on with it. And the sad thing is, for decades after President Carter was being dynamic and, and, and sensible about it, we had the overhang of this Luntz memo in politics, where one side of the political debate said the science is in dispute. We know that that's not the case. Net zero is a scientific certainty. It is not a slogan. But we've lost decades because of that. Let me just make another point related to the 1970s, which is relevant. At that time, when President Carter was making the right decision, but perhaps was not a strong enough leader to push it through, the Swedish took a similar position. They said, my goodness, look at this oil crisis and also look at the climate implications of this oil crisis and the costs on, on our planet. We will instigate a carbon tax. And they put into place a carbon tax. And they have it today. And it's the highest in the world. It's $130 per ton. But as a result of that process that was started decades ago in Sweden, they are now essentially carbon neutral. They've changed their entire economy. And they are a successful social democratic economy with low levels of inequality and high levels of growth. In other words, they've demonstrated you can make the transition. They started earlier. So their costs were less than our costs will be today. But we can do it with, as you say, leadership. You cannot do it without leadership. We need leadership. I'm pleased to see that leadership evident in the United States, in President Biden, in his staff and, and administration picks now. You hear it repeatedly. This is not just sloganizing. This is a real shift. And thank goodness, perhaps we're not too late. You know, um, Stuart, one of the reasons I think books like you've written and yourself needs a lot more exposure is that uh, too often on the other side, when I talk about the other side, I'm not talking politically now. I'm talking about those who disregard uh, climate change. Uh, they, they have a big voice. Uh, and for some reason, the mainstream, what we call the mainstream media, tends to give them a bigger worth than they are worth, if you will. Now, uh, you mentioned about uh, how the lost decades. Now, we are in a we are likely in the most capitalist country that we have. And one of the definitions of capitalism is the, uh, the, the smart allocation of resources, the efficient allocation of resources. And supposedly that means that it, there should be a market that could discern these eventualities, these things that would create problems. Uh, wouldn't you say that that points out a distinct failure in the way we practice our form, our economic system that right now has us in danger at a tipping point in the world. After all, between yes. us, a capitalist country, and China, who we like to call a communist country, but is really a communist capitalist country, capitalism has nothing to do with, what, with your political system. Uh, 
don't you think there is a problem that has to be resolved first before we can really get into this modal that you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, that is a very important piece, which is we, we, we economists have known for decades that the fundamental failure of market economics is to internalize the cost of carbon. We all do it, right? We get on a, a, a plane that's super cheap to fly short distances, spewing out carbon dioxide. We drive cars that are very polluting. We uh, perhaps eat too much meat and make ourselves unwell, or at least a little bit overweight. There are all these things that we do where, where we're not internalizing the cost because the, because the policymakers haven't made that determination. They haven't said, look, we need to price things realistically. And a realistic pricing includes the damage that you're doing to produce that good. Now, in most cases, it wouldn't create a dramatic, disastrous change to everyone's lives. No. Would your burger be fractionally more expensive? Yes, it would. Uh, would the flight you take be slightly more expensive? Yes, it would. Some policymakers, like in France, are making taking more radical steps. So they're doing, for instance, in France, if if the if the journey is less than three hours, you can't take a plane. You have to take the train if the train is available. In other words, they're telling the pla- the, the the airlines where there's a functioning high speed rail network over this distance. Uh, you cannot fly there because it's too polluting. Now, that's a radical solution. Now, I'm not suggesting we can get to that solution in America because America is much more market-oriented. But what we can do is say to the businesses and to even us as consumers that we have to pay the real price of what we're doing. And we know that when you do that, people change. Take, for example, this tiny, small change that was done recently in many communities in D.C. where, where they said, okay, you can have your plastic bag at the grocery, but you've got to pay an extra five cents. And what they find is that behaviorally, when the person is sold, oh, I have to pay an extra five cents. I don't do that. It's, you know, five cents is nothing. But the, the, it triggers in our minds, God, why am I not doing that? Now, everybody carries their own bags. I know you do. I know I do. So there's an ex- the point I'm making here is you need to change those incentives. And small shifts in incentives can have very large and significant changes in behavior. And the market system can accelerate things very rapidly. So, for instance, with the announcement by GM uh, last year that they were going full on into EVs, it changed all of the calculus for the rest of the automobile industry. And I can say that I just recently, and this is not an advert, this is just showing you I'm responding to, that I put my deposit down for uh, for the F-150 light, Lightning. Uh, hey, this, this thing's going to go from zero to zero to 60 in five seconds. And it's, and it's, you know, and it's carbon neutral. It's fantastic. I'm totally I, going for it. Look, let me tell you, I'm an engineer by training. And when I saw that F-150 pulling a, a, um, a train, a, a full <laughs> locomotive, it was like, what people don't understand is with, with, with electricity, you have more control, better gearing, yes. et cetera, that allows you a small device like that to pull a train, which a combustion engine is a bit more com- com- you know, complicated yes. to do that. So it was great seeing that. And it's great that you, you have it down on the F-150. And, and the, the, the thing about that example, and there are many examples like this on when we talk about how we get from here to there to net zero, it's not, a, it's not simply a cost. Oftentimes, there are really superb innovations involved in that shift. 
And so what it means is I get a better product. Uh, Well-paid jobs are created in America for union workers producing American uh, goods. And you get more jobs in that new sector, which pay better than the old jobs, because that's one of the things we've seen from the pandemic response is that people realize that maybe a lot of jobs are undervalued and we need to rethink about how we pay people and what we pay them for. And I think the future, the green globalization 2.0, I like to call it, is going to actually be more prosperous, potentially more equitable and, of course, sustainable. So it's not a question of this is going to cost me, we can't afford it. It's no, the future can be better. And moreover, we must afford it. You know, uh, that last statement that you made is extremely important. We must, we must. That word must, because um, you gave some good reasoning. You point out that, yes, it can create more jobs. Yes, it can be more prosperous. And yes, we can use it as the platform to make our systems more equitable. Now, that said, it's not really true that it it definitely has to make us more equitable, right? We could still right. have the, the master on the top making all the spoils like he does right now, uh, where, where, you know, capitalism sort of skews everything up. We can use this as a reason to more to make things more equitable. And, you know, it's almost like a restart. But here's my, my, my question. Why is it that we have to sell saving the planet, ultimately saving our lives, by saying, oh, it's going to make things more prosperous. Oh, it's going to make more jobs. It, it seems like if this is something that is existential, that shouldn't even be a part of the equation. That's right. And so it is a, it's, 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 it's a tension. Some people uh, will, will, will resonate with the job narrative and understand that we need to create, right. we need to sustain the economy anyway. We can't say to people, you can, save the, you can save the planet, but you will live in penury. That's not going to work as a political matter. So you need to have a, a narrative that says how, how, how tomorrow, a green tomorrow, will be a better, more equitable and stronger, potentially more equitable uh, uh, existence. However, you're absolutely right. There are, there are ethical and moral reasons why we should do this anyway. Why we have to do it anyway, because we live on this planet. We don't live outside the planet. Right. And if, if we face ecological collapse because we fail to act, it is, we are going to tip into a hothouse world where we can never come back, not in the, not in the realms of human history anyway. And we need to remember those, that stark warning. Let me give you one example. There was a period earlier in prehistory called the Younger Dryas, which took place about 11,000 years ago, when there was a sudden warning, warming of the planet, flooding large parts of, of what was then the European landmass. The reason why it's important to, to remember these, these instances, and many people don't know about them. Actually, I'm learning this right now. Is that People think that climate change goes slowly, slowly, and oh, it's very diffuse. And it's okay, the temperature's gone up just a tiny bit, but let's not worry, right? Because it seems like that. You get every year there's about two two additional parts per billion in carbon dioxide added to the to the atmosphere. Now it's at 414 parts, which is the highest level in human history. We should be extremely worried about that. But it seems to be so gradual that most of the time it doesn't worry us. But the real danger is that 
what happens actually in complex climate systems is that it goes slowly and then you hit a sudden breakpoint, you can't tell when it's going to happen and boom, everything changes. So in the case of the Younger Dryas, there was an increase in temperature of 10 degrees C over a decade. Oh. And consider that. It's a staggering increase. Uh, so the seas rose. Large parts of the landmass of Europe disappeared beneath the waves. They've never been seen since. Before that, I, my ancestors could walk from Scotland to mainland Europe. You can't do that anymore because the seas rose. So the point I'm making here, and this is going to your point about why we have to, we do have to have a sense of urgency, and that it's not just about short-term economic benefits. It's about the sustainability of life on Earth and we see those danger signs all over the place. We see them in California in, 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 the, in the drought and the fires in California. We see it in Australia with the terrible, terrible fires. We see it in Bangladesh last year, where there's over a third of the country submerged by water. We can see it again and again. And we, so there is, there's, it's, it's both an economic argument, but it must be one also of consistent urgency because we know from the pandemic response from COVID, you, the best thing to do when you confront a crisis is act immediately. Don't delay. The longer you delay, the worse the outcome. Absolutely. So I have two more important questions. First one is um, I can, an economic system is human made. We created an economic system to serve us. As we look at the entire earth today, there's a, there are a whole lot of people on the earth. There is a whole lot of work to be done. Right now, we simply are not connecting the people with all the work that needs to be done, which is really, to, I mean, that's a failure of an economic system. Shouldn't we be working on one that in doing so would also mitigate all these issues that we're talking about? Yes, we need to have a fairer ba balance and a more equitable response. So because people uh, the world over understand that, and we understood it during the COVID response, that because everybody bore the brunt of it together fairly, People will carry burdens, but they are not going to carry a burden if they feel that they are getting repeatedly the short end of the climate stick and the short end of the economic stick. And so if I was in Africa or I'm in India or I'm in other poor parts of the world, which have essentially contributed almost nothing to the climate crisis, which has been created entirely by the advanced economies, overspending, overpolluting. And I'm told, well, you've got to do all these changes and we're not going to support you uh, sink or swim, literally. I, I'm, I'm probably going to get pretty upset and I won't be able to respond or I will refuse because I'm not being supported. And the cost of supporting people to a more equitable outcome where everybody makes the leap together is minuscule. When you think that the current commitments is 100 billion a year, to lesser developed countries. And the major advanced economies are still bickering over it in advance of COP26 in November. They still haven't agreed to actually give the money they were supposed to give in, the, in, the, in any case. I'm saying, well, you should give double that. You should give 200 billion a year. This is small beer. Bear in mind that, 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 that in the pandemic response, the advanced economies spent $15 trillion to maintain their economies. In the, in, in the scheme of things, 100 billion or 200 billion a year to make the transition okay. achievable in Africa and in poorer countries is entirely uh, doable. We can do it. We especially, just 
Especially when those countries were used as the raw material for the industrial revolution from of all course. the resources that yes. were extracted from them. Now, you know, you, you, you think, you think as you, you jumped my last question because the last question that I was going to place to you was, uh, and you kind of alluded to that, that carbon in the air right now that has, if, that has caused climate change was mostly done by the industrialized countries. So to ask all the other countries not to get uh, more wealth, develop more wealth, right. develop more items, uh, they have to be paid for that because they, they are not the ones that caused this issue. So how do we, the, one of the promises, I don't believe it or not, you're one of the few that actively say that because when you ask many people right now, Hey, um, America needs to do so much to reduce its carbon footprint. The first thing is, well, China is throwing a whole lot of carbon in the air. Well, India is throwing a whole lot of carbon in the air. They're not going to reduce. And it's like, well, we have to create the incentive because they're developing now. We we got rich on what we threw up there in the air. How shouldn't we be educating our peoples in these in these Western countries to that reality and realize that it's now time to compromise? Yes, I think so. And let me let me give you an example of why this works. And this because part of what I talk about in the book is about the need for new stories about how we think and talk and converse about climate change. Why does that matter? That matters because we need a proper, particularly in America, we need to have a face to face discussion in our local communities about about what climate change is. So agreeing the facts, because they are facts, these are not disputable political notions. The scientists can show us and would show us, the, this are the, these are the facts. Once we agree the facts together, as communities, as neighbors, as friends, not as ad- adversaries, the question then becomes, as we said at the beginning of our conversation, not whether something's happening, but what do we do about it? And we can then have arguments about, well, I want to use this policy as opposed to I want to use taxes, I want to use incentives. And my, my answer is it's all of the above. But we need to have those conversations. And in having those conversations, we can get past the antagonism, past the false narratives and uh, you know, uh, social media-driven foolishness and come to a recognition that we are all in it together. And that means in America, but it also means our countries elsewhere, because we need investments for the future, green investments for the future in countries where their economies, their economies and peoples are still growing. Those green investments will be in Africa. They will be in other countries, not just ours. And so it's in our, it's in our collective benefit to our collective good, good that we help them make that transition because we will benefit too. Absolutely. So um, interestingly, a lot of NGOs are working in Africa with things like solar cells to, 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 to do things out in the boondocks and different forms of communication. Anyhow, last question that I always ask is, what didn't I ask you that I should have asked you? Um, good question. Uh, can, can we do it fast okay. enough? I, I, I grapple with my own Scottish pessimism because I, I'm a Scot and Scots are very pessimistic. We're always saying that, that, that things are going to be bad, so just accept it. <laughs> no, I, since I'm American now as well, I have to be an optimist. Right. So I say, can we do it? We, I think we can do it. I think we ha- once we recognize the crisis together as communities, as Americans, as, as citizens of the world, we can make the leap. 
it is it is not to a disastrous future. It can be a much better, more equitable, sustainable future. Uh, we can do it. We just need to uh, make the leap this year. We can't delay. We've got only a few decades. Really, we need to do most of what we have to have before us before 2030. We can do it. Let's get off our backsides. Let's force the leaders who are meeting in Glasgow in November to, to be ambitious and aggressive and not timid. Stuart McIntosh, author of Climate Crisis Economics, The Net Zero Transition, that will be published September 2021 by the Rutledge Press. Thank you so kindly for having been a part of Politics Done Right. Thank you, Egberto. It's a pleasure. Take care. I hope you enjoyed the show today. Again, I want to remind all of you, please remember to keep your community radio station, KPFT 90.1 FM Houston, in your minds. Talk about it. Tell your friends to tune in to 90.1 FM Houston or listen at kpft.org. Keep us on air by donating what you can afford at our website, kpft.org. Once again, remember, you can get Politics Done Right Mondays through Friday on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right. That is facebook.com slash politics done right. Or on YouTube Live at politics done right.com slash YouTube. Politics done right.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My handle is at Egberto Willis, at E G B E R T O W I L L. IES. Again, thank you so kindly for having been with us today. You know how I'm going to end this, baby. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know what? We are what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. 